Hi. Hello. How are Hi. you? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, I am Alexis Hyde. I am Erica Wong. And we are joined today by Catherine DeVos Devine, a lawyer and art historian. Welcome to Hyder Practice. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. It's such good, so good to have uh, lawyers on because I can't tell you how many questions we get about all the lawyer stuff. And it's like, let me tell you that I don't know because I don't have a law degree. Uh, But for our listeners, our lovely listeners, could you give us the elevator pitch? Who are you? What do you do? Where are you doing it? So I am an attorney and an art historian. I work exclusively with artists and creative folk. Um, I'm also a lecturer in art history at Queen's University, and I am in Asheville, North Carolina, which is in the lovely Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, I live a few steps and work a few steps from national forests. It's nice. Yeah. That's really nice. That's like aggressively pleasant. It smells like a campfire downtown LA right now. Um, I'd die. I would, I would literally kill for a forest. So I would love to dive into, you were generous enough to send us an incredible article about a, um, a suit that just got, I don't know how you say settled, ended, j- ruled on between oh. Nicki Minaj and Tracy Chapman today. And I would love to discuss it because I think it has so many implications for all creatives uh, working everywhere. It does. Um, Okay, so it's a partial ruling. Mm -hmm. Um, That's important to note. So the judge actually only spoke to part of, to one of the claims, and then the other claim is actually being, is going to a jury. So, but it was a case filed by Tracy Chapman um, asserting that Nicki Minaj had infringed her copyright in a song. Um, What's important to know about the creation of the song and the disposition of the case and the disagreement is that Nikki had created a work for Chapman's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Approval, essentially. So she created a demo um, in the studio and she was thinking about releasing it, but because it interpolated, it used a significant amount of one of Tracy Chapman's songs, Baby Can I Hold You, she needed permission in order to release it to the public. And Chapman said no, because she has a blanket prohibition on licensing her work. And somehow, we don't know how, it was released to Hot 97, it was played on the radio, it made its way to the internet, and then Chapman filed suit. But what's really exciting about the partial ruling is that the judge said that a work that is produced, a study, a demo, something that's an intermediate sort of experiment is fair use. That in something like this, when it's produced in order to acquire a license, when it's produced in order to secure permission, then it is fair use. And that's completely novel. That's not something that a court's ever said before. And so it brings this whole class of experimentation under the umbrella of fair use and also because the court was so unbelievably clear about it like they really stated it in plain english it should at least you know for me for my clients like it gives me a lot more security in saying to a client 
yeah, you can go ahead and make this kind of experiment, the study, this draft, and then go ahead and try to get a license for what you're doing and wrap it all up. And then you can release it because then you're not anticipating once something is out in the world, a potential full on lawsuit from someone. Because I, I mean, it, the fact that you told me that this was not a, like that this was kind of illegal or, you know, not explicit to me is crazy because how do you get the permission? How do you explain to an artist what the art is that you want to do? Or if you're going to use an image or if you're going to use a portion of it, if you can't use it to demonstrate, which is what a demo is, guys, demo means demonstrate, um, then how can you get to that level? Um, and you know, having worked with, you know, artists who do use other people's images in their work, we would, it would sometimes be hard to describe it if we hadn't gotten there yet. Um, and so this is like really, really exciting because I feel like it does, it, it helps you keep your freedom of like creativity without a fear of, you know, potentially the expensive retribution. Well, and I hope it provokes more conversations mm -hmm. between artists about reuse. Um, one of the great failures in the structure of copyright law is that it actually inadvertently promotes the sort of aggressive appropriation that we see from an artist like Richard Prince because it's not, it has not, at least to date, been legal to create this kind of, it would be a derivative work automatically, which is a right held by the copyright holder even if it's made for private purposes. And so as you were saying, how do you demonstrate what you want to do other than by articulating it, say in a telephone conversation or writing about it in an email, but that's sort of inapposite if you're creating a song or you're creating a work of visual art because that interpretation may be off, it may not, or it just might not be persuasive. And so this offers an opportunity for artists to make much more persuasive pitches to those that they're trying to get a license from and may often result or may often or you know i hope will result in like actual collaborations or may lend itself to more fruitful um, engagements between people who create in different ways or between generations or between media so this new partial ruling mm -hmm. it's it will stand until someone says no? Is that how that's going to work? It depends on if someone says no, but yes, I'm okay. certain Chapman's attorneys will appeal um, and we'll see what the district court says. But for now, it's a really interesting addition to copyright jurisprudence. And Quick, just legal question. It's yeah. as this stands, so if they were to appeal, it still stands until the next judge says yay or nay, or does it stop standing once she files it suit? It stands until the next judge says yay or nay. I mean, it's also important to note that it's a California district court. And mm -hmm. so technically, it only applies to California, and it, you know, it can be overturned. But because it's wholly new precedent. It's a wholly new line of argument. It certainly builds on prior arguments about transformation and market harm, but its clarity and its simplicity is something that can be picked up by courts right now until it's overturned, um, or even by courts in the future. I mean, it's the ways that new ideas are smuggled into legal opinions um, are a fascinating subject in and of themselves. I mean, sometimes they arise out of academic literature. Sometimes they come from the attorney's briefs, which is where this one came from. Um, but depending on what a court chooses to adopt, you can provoke 
a whole new line of jurisprudence and a whole new conceptualization of what it means to share and reuse. I mean, that's really how transformation got kicked off. It was a judge who found an idea he really liked in a law review article, and then he imported it. And we got this, you know, at times very confusing, but also very productive um, line of sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, um, branch in the copyright doctrine. So to bring this back, like, if that's okay, I just wanted to go and say for, for artists, because we're talking exclusively about the song that Tracy Chapman and Nicki Minaj had written about. So in terms of how this may or may not impact an artist and the way that they create is that we look for a lot of inspiration. I think that's a good general word. So if we're a certain type of artist, Okay, I'm going to use like what I do because that's probably the easiest. So I am very inspired by land art. Mm -hmm. And maybe I make something that is reminiscent of the spiral jetty okay. because of its shape. And I guess this is sort of what I'm understanding is that if I made a piece that was similar to a spiral jetty, the foundation may have sued me because it was not okay for me to go and do something like that. Is that what that sort of means? Because I can be inspired and I want to go make something. If I was to create something that looks like the jetty's shape, but it's not in water and it's not crystallized salt but it has the very distinct shape of a jetty mm -hmm. and that is the piece of work that i am going to go and show would i therefore be um getting myself in danger like with the foundation be like no you have to take this apart because this looks like the spiral jetty. Okay. So Erica, I'm not surprised that you introduced an incredibly complex hypothetical. Um, land art is an unusual area for copyright law. Um, it's not necessarily copyrightable and it's not necessarily not. And something that I frequently remind my students is that Laws do not arise sui generis, they arise when there's a problem. So legislators and judges don't wake up one morning and say, oh, you know, I was just thinking about this art form and we should make some rules about it. Someone has to have an argument about it first. And to my knowledge, though I might be wrong, um, I know that there's a Canadian artist who actually did copyright um, a land work. Um, it was to prevent the building of a pipeline, but I can't think oh God, of is it Edward whatever whatever the Albertan name um but we can find it I'm sure and put it in the show notes um I can't think of an American case I mean there's certainly been VARA cases Visual Artist Rights Act cases that deal with land art and they were not particularly generous to the artists so if you don't mind me changing the hypothetical can we use photographs since there's plenty. Sure. I was actually going to be like, we could use like glass boxes and be like Dan Graham, but we'll move something else. I'm coming for Richard. I'm coming for Richard Sarah. That's it. I'm doing a whole thing. What are you going to do about it, buddy? This is funny. Steel through a field. 
you guys keep coming up with really difficult ones. I mean, there's also a really um, Brandier versus Cascade, a, a really small but fascinating case in which the court declares that minimalist sculpture is not copyrightable because it's functional. Fuck. And because, yeah. No, I mean, courts have been very unkind to minimalist sculpture and to abstract art. There's also a case, Franklin Graham, in which the court specifically declares that abstract art is like, Know, kind of more creative because there are just only so many ways that you can represent an object in nature in that case nice. a cardinal um so judges introduce some really peculiar at least ideas that we as artists or art professionals would find really odd you know and it works under copyright law but we would look at it and probably be horrified by the the blunt indiscriminateness of their um, analysis or taste guys okay so for our listeners for something very like foundational mm -hmm. what do we need to look out for how do we safeguard ourselves all right so what i usually tell clients or folks who are just asking me on instagram is you know what are you doing and why are you doing it and um Peter Jazzy, who's a, a wonderful professor of copyright law, actually boiled down the fair use. There are four factors in fair use, and they can be very confusing. And he just sort of boiled it down. He's like, okay, you know, what are you making? What are you using? And why are you using it? Is your purpose to create something new, or is it to supplant the original work? So, as you might guess, you want to be in the former camp, not the latter. You want to be using the prior work in service of something new on your journey to create something new you don't want to be kind of jumping on it or supplanting it i mean you're literally thinking about supplanting the market for it um literally knocking it out of its market position and that's what you don't want to be doing so starting sort of from the simplest possible scenario are you reposting an image on instagram for your own purposes and your own feed. Fine, great. I mean, more or less fair use. To be ethically correct, you should also cite the work. You should direct folks to the artist, to the creator. And if you're feeling particularly ethical and generous, help them figure out where to buy what they're seeing. I have a um, question a little bit. Can is, is choreography considered copyrighted? Yes. It is. Um, it's registered in interesting ways, usually either through, um, usually via video. Actually, you usually send a, a disc or a video off to the copyright office. But so yes, my, choreography so my, is incredible. My TikTok posts? Is that, I'm going to start. I mean, your TikTok I'm gonna posts. Start a dance, I'm going to start a dance trend, and I want to make sure I'm getting my copyrights. Um, but it, it is interesting just because there is a, there's a very large conversation on TikTok happening right now about like, you know, crediting the original choreographers of dances that get more popular by other more popular creators. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's a lot of it seems to be very ego driven, but it's also I'm like, well, if someone created that dance, that's their, that's their art form. They could, you know, especially now that their TikTok has the creators fund where you get, you get money for posting videos if you have so many followers. So that is um, interesting. I don't know how many, you know, some of these Gen Z kids care about this, but as the elder millennial on the platform, I'm enjoying my observations. So two responses to that. The first is what we're doing right now is copyrightable. 
I mean, I have been writing a lot of collaboration agreements lately, which are contracts. I just don't use the word contract with artists because they shy away from it. We say scary. It's a a bad word. It's a scary word. So we say agreement or understanding. So I've been writing a lot of collaboration agreements lately for webinars and interviews that are conducted over Zoom. Who owns the intellectual property rights to that collaborative work? How long is it going to live online? And um, under what terms? Who's going to get paid? And how often are they going to get paid? And is there an affiliation agreement? And so many of the things that we do all day, every day, are actually copyrightable work. I mean, they fall under the aegis of the creative work. So right now, because we're conducting this via Zoom, I mean, we would, and then there will be a sound recording. You know, you have a copyrightable video, you have a copyrightable sound recording. If you create a transcript, there'll be a copyrightable writing. And so when I am writing contracts for clients, I'm conceiving of all of these things. Like what are these iterations and what needs to be protected and what are the worst case scenarios that might come down the pipeline eventually and how do we account for them? And then the second response to that is that these are not exactly new forms or new impressions, but they often give rise to these sort of weird gray areas. And when you think about say copyright or fashion design or textiles, there are these strange lacunae in copyright law where you know things are not as protected as they might be because they're functional or because they are not overtly fixed in a tangible medium, which is a requirement in the statute. And I find that say the trickiest clients that I work with are often um, female fiber artists because you know the shirt I'm wearing, that is not copyrightable, it is functional. It would fall off my body if it wasn't created in the way it is. And copyright actually makes a distinction between the functional and the aesthetic and the aesthetic is copyrightable, the functional is not. And so figuring out how to copyright a pattern say the image of it that is drawn, um, the sketch, or protecting it through trade secret. Like there are a whole bunch of different ways to protect something like choreography, um, a textile design, um, a say like instructions for ritual. I work also with a lot of professional mystics and like figuring out how to copyright their stuff is fascinating because it's also cultural property. Um, So we don't only use copyright. You know, we also use contract and trade secret and non-disclosure agreements. And um, I often tell my clients that there are a bunch of wraps you can use. And you might think of it as like a veil. And so you can veil your work with copyright protection. It's automatic. By registering your copyright, you're adding another veil, another layer. You can protect it through a licensing agreement, which is a form of contract. You can protect it through trade secrets, say, by keeping the mechanics by which you made it close. You can ask your employees to sign non-disclosure agreements so that they can't share your process with someone else. But so there's not one way to protect an artwork. There are many ways to do it. And choosing which method is most appropriate is um, partly a science and partly an art. Yeah. So when do I need to start doing this? Like if I post on Instagram regularly, meaning once a day, mm-hmm. do I do I need to have all the veils? 
No. Okay. Let me rephrase. If I had all the veils, does that mean that I'm super protected? And then therefore like everything that I've now posted, it can't be, um, someone can't steal from me. No. People uh, can still steal from you. <laughs> That's stealing. It's illegal. <laughs> they can still steal from you. They're the criminals. They don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> what remedies are available to you when they do steal from you? You know, how many hammers do you have to go after them with? Um, hopefully a lot. Hopefully a lot. And right. So, so each veil is like another hammer in your tool belt to come back. Yes. Because to retaliate. A separate claim to avenge. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying filing a claim for copyright infringement, you're filing a claim for copyright infringement, breach of contract, trademark infringement. I mean, you're filing multiple claims because they are based on these multiple layers of protection. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. I love it. I don't know. So what do I need to do in the bare minimum if I'm posting every day to safeguard my creativity and creation it depends i mean everything we do all day carries a certain degree of risk exposure right you walk out in the street you need to look both ways because you might get hit by a car similarly if you're going to post on instagram you are incurring a certain measure of risk because you're sharing your work with the public but with risk comes reward. You're also getting exposure and increasing your audience and perhaps getting clients, making a sale, and you want all of these things. But so to get that reward, you incur a certain degree of risk. Um, with Instagram particularly, I am a big fan of um, the ethical approach with Instagram. And so that's not just good behavior, good etiquette. As I was describing before, I engage in a lot of what I call crowd shaming on Instagram, which is Same. if I see someone using a work without attribution, I will not only find the attribution, I will publicly declare that this is being done. Um, you know, I'll go after corporations more aggressively, but for example, just last night, an author I really love and admire put up a work um, by a printmaker and he explained where his jacket came from, but just said, yeah, I, I don't know where the print came from. It took me less than three minutes to find out where the print came from. So of course I tagged the artist, but I also um, put the image on my second Instagram feed, which is, um, it started as a joke between me as an, and an artist friend because of this practice I have of attributing everything that I see. And it's called, um, found it bitches because yes yes i didn't know about this i am so excited oh my god this is gonna be so loud i'm so sorry <laughs> i'm so sorry that's gonna be so well, loud it's very appropriate because i shout found it bitches at my yes. computer screen when i inevitably find this totally mysterious artwork that this person couldn't oh, they secure couldn't find it it was no, so like, difficult how could you only google existed what oh yeah. google image reverse search whatever get out of here with that oh, no. so um yeah attribution it's important <laughs> and it's not hard it's not hard it's not hard and it's so it's so funny because it's you see these things and like there is like the ethical you know needs of it and there are you know the fair use that it is there's a lot of like real gray area but there's some stuff that's just so 
blatant. And it's like, you will see like, here's the person who made my ring, but like nothing about the artwork or this is like, it's very clear what people's priorities are, which is always like, LOL, how art kind of gets like shoved to the side. One really funny thing that I'm seeing a lot lately is especially with like design blogs and things that they'll post like, this is where you get this chair from at CB2 because they need the credit, but like nothing about the artist on the wall. <laughs> and I'm like, come on guys. Like this is, you know, it's part of the whole thing. The chair wouldn't look as good if you didn't have that art there. Um, and it's not so hard to find and it doesn't take long to ask. And it's, and it's incredibly frustrating. This is probably why I get so many questions from people like, how do I protect my work? And part of me is like, you know, that's presumptuous. Like <laughs> you really, you really think someone's like coming after your stuff, but then like you see things like that and it's like, oh yeah, no, people are, you know, I'm, I'm hit with it every day. So I'm just like, oh, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. I'm also very much not a creator. I'm not making anything. So like, whatever. I mean, Richard Prince used one of my photographs on his Instagram once. Not going to lie about that. I've got a screenshot of it. I'm going to make my own Instagram painting out of it. Ah, but I just have to get around to it. But the, it's like, you know, I don't, I'm not a creator, so I don't have like an invested interest in like the things that I create because usually I'm doing it for lols. Uh, but the idea that people will, especially corporations, and then especially because I still see it, I see people posting about it on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter, and they're like, well, they apologized and then said they didn't know. And I'm like, Sephora didn't know. Well, and that's a good example. Nike didn't um, know. <laughs> a wonderful example. I with a cohort got um, a product taken off the shelves of Sephora because Good. you know, their initial response is, Oh, we didn't know. And it's like, well, now you do. So right. take it out of the stream of commerce. Um, okay. You know, there was another situation where Starbucks had ripped off an artist in a marketing campaign and it was really her crowdsourcing support that because no art, no attorney would take on her case. They didn't want to be adverse to Starbucks. And, you know, she got the ad campaign taken down, but it was really through the strength of public pressure. And so to circle back to Erica's original question, I think one of the best things you can do to protect yourself on Instagram is actually to cultivate your following and engage with them and rally your, because when the time comes, you'll want to be able to rally that support and do it very quickly. And it's actually very effective. I mean, yeah. companies don't necessarily want to be in the position of looking like total assholes. Right. And if there is a threatened boycott, you know, or it's made clear that their um, art department engaged in you know, really nefarious behavior. Taylor Swift's recent folklore controversy is a really exciting example of that, where she just was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like the designer I hired clearly ripped this off. We're calling all the merchandise back. We're done. Yeah. Um, but that's really on the strength of the artist's own argument and then the support from their following. Yeah. No, that's true. So you see those things and you've got the different, uh, different areas where people can really, because it's, yeah, one person doesn't really make a difference, but you get a hundred people, you get a thousand people. And I know people who get things pulled for, you know, just a couple, the, the vocal and sometimes wrong, not in the, these cases, but sometimes they'll be wrong. You know, a vocal minority can get things pulled just because people don't want to deal with it because the people who are handling those emails and those social media, they're just regular people. <laughs> You know, and you get a lot of hate. It's a lot. I don't want to deal with it anymore. This is crazy. Someone pulled a campaign. This is like too much. Um, so you kind of think that these people are bulletproof, but I think that there is definitely 
just to reiterate for anyone listening who has concerns, if someone tells you, especially if it's a, corp- a multi-billion dollar corporation that they didn't know, like it's literally your job to know. Like it's their job to know. I'm not you, the artist. It's like, it's fucking Starbucks's marketing team's idea to like job to know that like yeah. somebody ripped off the, in the art department. It's, you know, it's Mercedes Benz's job to know in their advertising that they're posting someone's street art that like, you can't do that. They just thought they could get away with it. So when they cry, I didn't know, like that's a lie because if you were trying to do the opposite, I guarantee you, you've got a cease and desist in like two fucking minutes. Like you post something and it's like, nope, this is not your fair use, take it down. So just, you know, that's just like a little personal thing. Cause I see those things and then they're like, I accepted the apology cause they pulled it and said they didn't know. And I'm like, no, this is the man you have to keep raging. <laughs> it's also very simple. I mean, I'm a parent. And so sometimes I explain things in parenting terms and, you know, with my daughter who's eight, she'll say, I didn't know. And I was like, okay, well now you do. And so right. now that you know, you need to act differently. And so if it happens a second or third time, well, she's been put on notice. And so the consequences are you know, going to kick in at that point. The work of appropriation art, where there is a certain level of danger and insecurity in choosing to use a prior work in yours. Mm-hmm. And there are consequences to that decision. That's I'm, part of what makes it exciting and transgressive and propulsive but to say that there should be no consequences that confuses me um do it but do it in full light and full awareness that there may be literally a price to pay um there may be repercussions I, i I'm confused by why that would not be part of an artist's thought process. This idea that one should just go into the studio and create unfettered without any potential consequence. I mean, that's, that's a peculiar thought to me because that's not something that we, we do in any other part of our lives. I mean, when you drive and you exceed the speed limit, you know, there's a potential consequence. You might get a ticket. And if you want to exceed the speed limit, fine. You do. Most people, I do it all the time. Um, but I know I can get pulled over. Right. And art making has elements of danger to it. That's part of what makes art so emotionally resonant, um, so politically important. Um, I, I don't see what's bad about that. I mean, I can understand why there needs to be more clarity, and that's why decisions like the Minaj Chapman case are so exciting. But at the same time, um, you know, if everything about art was clear and neat and tidy, it would be boring. I really just wanted to make a fast car joke with the Chapman and the speeding. <laughs> oh, God. Um, Sorry. Uh, I fall into puns on a regular I, it's basis. Just, so that's- it was right there. I had to take it. Um, but the it is interesting because there is, there is going to be the, the idea of like, well, I'm an artist. I should have like this like unfettered freedom is strange and naive like just because you're doing something that doesn't mean that there and you put it out there there can be repercussions and it can be you know especially right now with all the conversations about cancel culture which is separate and I don't really want to get into it just because it's exhausting but you know if you put something out there as a creative some people might not like it Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, that's fine. This is an argument I have with artists daily. They're like, well, someone told me it wasn't worth $3,000. I was like, well, then that's not your client. Mm-hmm. You know, like people hate Damien Hurst. You know what effect it has on his market? None. 
<laughs> like people like he's fine he because he, he has collectors who value his work and he's got people who want to show him people hate jeff coons literally doesn't matter um and people are still like if you're still have an audience and have people who want to consume your things like that's great but you know they're not going to put produce something and then ha expect that people aren't going to you know dislike it and then same thing if you're going to produce something that has someone else's work and maybe it's not transformative enough and you're not creating something new there can be the same way like where it's the reverse situation if someone were to take your work you would be upset because you wouldn't think it was fair use um, and I think that can kind of be a, a little bit of a selfish, a little bit of a narcissistic standpoint of like, I exist in this vacuum and my creativity should be unchecked and my, you know, work should be uncriticized. Um, and instead of, you know, having a little bit more of an empathetic and not even in a dramatic way, just of a, if the situation was reversed and someone was doing it to me, how would I feel? Mm -hmm. And would I want to have protections against that? And would I want to have, you know, an opportunity to, you know, either take that back or have some sort of, I don't know, ramifications dealt. Uh, and I don't think that, I think it's, it's a little bit of a, it's a little selfish. I think there's a layer of the idea of recontextualization. Mm -hmm. I think that, where do you draw the line between recontextualizing an idea and appropriation? Um, I see a lot of appropriation a lot of times, like culturally, that I'm just like, mm, as an Asian, I think that's like very questionable. Only because I know sort of the labor behind something and why it has become the way it is. And then for that to be recontextualized in whatever era, I'm just like, mm, I don't that like makes a lot of sense because it doesn't it doesn't seem like it was considered so in many ways i think of all appropriation as recontextualization but relating back to what alexis was saying it that recontextualization can be very painful for the artist whose work is being recontextualized um there's a really great example of this on Hyperallergic a couple of years ago around new portraits where Sean Fader is interviewed and he discusses what it was like to make his Gagosian debut as part of new portraits and to have his work, which was largely obscure at that time, presented to the world in that way and to be depicted within this framework, within this recontextualization that he didn't find flattering or empowering at all. Um, I, I thought that that's a really great example that I frequently include that do. link in the in the story, guys. Sorry. When I talk to my own clients about this, because one of the things that I think of as being very different about me as an attorney is that I actually don't litigate. I only initiate and negotiate and advise. We do all of our work, um, all of my work with clients is as preventative as it can be. But I also talk about emotions with my clients. I talk about their feelings about their work and I talk about their feelings about the negotiation and generally do not bill by the hour. I work only on a project basis so that we can sit here in my office and have, or do it via Zoom in the time of COVID, um, and have these very intense conversations about how they feel about the matter and what can happen for them legally because those are not always the same thing but to me at least they're equally important and so the decisions we make about how we're going to proceed in a negotiation or how we're going to set up their business they 
those decisions start with how they feel about everything, with their story and how they want to present their work to the world and how they want to travel. They want their work to travel through the world and what kind of protections they want it to have when they let go of it. But all of that starts with feelings. Lots of them. We have so lots many. of people. I have all of them. Maybe too many. Maybe too many. Um, there was one more thing I was just going to ask, but then I got distracted thinking about my feelings. Um, <laughs> See, because, this is, oh, this is, no, this is where it was. I know, right? <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking about myself. No, but this is a good point because if you do, like, is something violating your rights or are you butthurt? You know, like that's a really good question to ask because I was talking about it in relationship to appropriation and in relationship to art that you support. And then when you stop supporting it, um, there's an artist, I brought it up a couple of times because Brad Trammell is an artist I love um, and he deals in meme culture and I support him financially through his Patreon. I'm a big believer in what he does and he, he hits, you know, he is swinging up big time at all the institutions. And then one day he started swinging at art advisors. And when I tell you, it felt like a little knife in my heart and I was really bummed. I was really hurt and I was like mad and I was just like, oh my God, like, how dare you? Like, I'm not like this. And then I was like, it took me a while. I, I'd like to say it was like an hour. It's probably a couple of days if I'm going to be honest because he does like a series on his Instagram and I saw it and I was just like, he's still coming at me. And then it's like, no, he's not coming at me. Like, it's not like, you know, hashtag not all at art advisors, but like it's, like, is he violating my art, my rights? Is he violating my person? Or like, am I just like kind of butthurt that like, I've kind of got like shown in a way that I don't like, like the uglier aspects of my career, you know, like I'm not, I can't be proud of it all the time. I think everybody can. I think I know artists who aren't proud of every aspect of their career. If they have to go hobnob with a collector that they don't like, or they're selling it to someone that they don't, you know, love, but they need the cash. Like we all make sacrifices all the time and we're not always 100% proud of everything we do. Um, I wish it wasn't like that. I'm not like saying that this is a good thing. I'm just saying, you know, the way of the world, but the, you know, it's not like a litigatable, you know, I'm not gonna like come after him for this thing and it doesn't dismiss his art just because, you know, I felt a little bit of a thing, but it is, it's like, oh, like, do I hate his art? Do I hate this thing? Or am I like sad? Am I scared? Am I offended that maybe someone did something better with like my idea than I did? You know, there's so many aspects to these things to think about and it's so hard to get your emotions out of it. And if you don't acknowledge that you're, it's an emotion and you just go on about how it's illegal, like, well, like you're not processing that, right? And like, you're probably going to, you probably are blinded by emotions. I mean, that's why we say that, right? You like mm -hmm. miss other things that you could be learning or avenues you could be taking if you're just like, raging against the gram like I was and pouting in the corner. I think that's very accurate. And I often tell clients, you know, saying I'm sorry is free. And nine times out of 10, it works. I worked on a negotiation recently where an artist had been commissioned to make a work and didn't have a contract. There was no agreement between the collector and the artist about what the final price would be. And at the end of the day, they were miles apart on what this, the final total should be. And legally, the artist wasn't really owed nearly as much as he thought. And a lot of the process of working with him was explaining the law, but also honoring his feelings about the work that he'd created and its value to him in the way that that value was not being perceived by the collector. And at the end of the day, 
when he got to the point where he could own his feelings and acknowledge the collector that you know perhaps he'd exceeded the bounds of the commission, he wound up getting paid four times more than we asked for because of the way we asked for it. Wow. So this is the thing, man. It is. People because that's the other thing. People want to be acknowledged. The co the the commission the commissioner. The, the commissioner sounds like Batman. The collector wants to be acknowledged that they feel like maybe they were taken advantage of. Like, this isn't the number we discussed. I'm also a human. This is my money. Like, yes, to the outside, somebody who's got a shit ton of money might feel like they're taken advantage of. We know this for a fact. Um, but like, you know, then it's like, no, like we had an agreement and this isn't what I thought. And now you want to take advantage of me. And it's like, no, like I just, I thought that I created a work of more value. You have the conversation and everybody's happy and discussion guys and words and feelings. And I love it. I love it. That makes me so happy. What, what have you been reading, watching, listening to this week? All right. So reading, because I'm always reading it, Proposals for the Feminine Economy by Jen Armbrust. Um, Jen runs Feminist Business School. And she's a former art dealer who thinks of business as art. And Proposals for the Feminine Economy is exactly what it sounds like. It's a series of... I need to read that. I know. I was just like, I'm going to add that to the inbox like, now. Awesome. It is the most magnificent book. Um, she makes an argument for imbuing... It's an anti-capitalist argument for imbuing our economy with, you know, traditionally feminine values, which I don't mean and Jen would not mean to state in as gendered a fashion as it sounds, but say values that have traditionally been characterized as feminine. Um, and I am constantly reading that book. Um, watching um, The Babysitter's Club. I don't really- It's fun, I heard it was really fun. It's so good. Oh my gosh, the updates to the series, um, which you know was a huge part of my childhood, are so, um, diverse and forward thinking and my daughter had such incredibly intelligent questions about it it's super entrepreneurial like oh it's really great um so i enjoyed that and listening to um music wise loot music for alchemists on spotify okay gorgeous playlist perhaps ever created and um in terms of podcasts i read tarot every morning and so I listen to tarot podcasts. Um, my favorites are Sarah Chapel's So You Want to Be a Witch, which is all about business and tarot. And then Lindsay Mack's Tarot for the Wild Soul, which is sort of just very gorgeous and psychological. But Lindsay has this super soothing voice. And so all throughout the pandemic, I'm just, I've Lindsay on all the time. Like even my husband will drift into the room and go, oh, are you listening to Lindsay again? Can I just? <laughs> down for a few minutes. Oh my god, I love it. Really soothing demeanor. Oh, that's awesome. Man, the second person we've had on here who pulls tarot. Now I'm like, maybe I need to get a deck. I think it's a really great practice for artists and art historians because it's a way of, it gives a visual framework to your thoughts. Um, and the interpretation can just be, it, it's a lot like doing art history. And so it's a very familiar framework for me. And I don't know, it's, just, it's a really soothing practice in the mornings. Interesting. Catherine, where can our wonderful listeners find you on the interwebs? Uh, Instagram is my favorite platform and at DeBoss Divine. 
and, and found it bitches. <laughs> found it bitches. Found yeah. it bitches. Right. Let's I download secret one. Instagram account. Um, and then of course at my website, which is devosdivine.com. Fantastic. All of that and all of her recommendations are going to be in the little blurby. Thank you again so much. This has been a delight. Um, until next time. Bye. Bye.